Welcome to the Sunday School Hour here at Faith Baptist Church. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Kings 22. Let's read the first couple of verses and then we'll expound. It says in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was was Jediah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the ways of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. The title of our lesson this morning is Josiah Rediscovers the Lord. Remember our lesson last week in chapter 21 about Manasseh and his evil ways and rebellion to his father, who didn't really care about the next generation coming up. And uh, all the terrible things that he did in his lifetime. And then his son, uh, you could read about between, uh, there at the bottom of the verse, or the bottom of chapter 21. His son, uh, Ammon, who was king over Judah, and like his father, did that which was evil inside the Lord. So it's been quite a few years since God has been truly worshipped in Judah. And then we come to chapter 22, and we see Josiah, a young man took the throne when he was eight years old. It's about Jacob's age. Jacob would be eight in December. Imagine somebody Jacob's age reigning over all of Judah. Uh, But the Bible says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of David and turned not aside. And he rediscovered the Lord. We see first of all this morning is restoring the temple of God. Imagine at this point, nobody's really used the temple, or at least not what it's meant to be used for, for quite a few years. Uh, And it has gone by the wayside. Imagine uh, one of those old buildings on the, you know, older part of town. Got vines growing all over it. It looks like it's falling apart, cracks in different places. Imagine that's kind of what the temple looked like. Nobody really used it or taken care of it in generations. Uh, but it says in verse 3, came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azalea, the son of Meshulam, uh, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house, under carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand, because they dealt faithfully. So we see, first of all, the restoring of the temple of God. He said, uh, let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. So we see here something actually kind of peculiar. We see the king declaring that the temple needs to be cared for. Anybody know why that's peculiar? I want you to think back to the days of Saul. 
right? King Saul, first ever king. Right? We talked about several of his blunders, but one of his earlier ones, you'll recall, was that he went and made a sacrifice. Right? He was waiting for Samuel to show up. Samuel was late. He was getting nervous, so he took the animal himself, and he made the sacrifice himself. That was a blunder. Why? Because he's not... Uh, right. Because he was a priest, or he wasn't a priest, he was a, pro he was a king, a king who had also served as prophet. Remember, he went up to the city of prophets, where the prophet's school was, that Samuel had served. Wow. And when he was there, the Holy Spirit came over him, and he began to prophesy, the Bible tells us. So he had served as king and prophet. But only the Lord Jesus was allowed to serve as prophet, priest, and king. And Saul was overstepping his authority. Because his was to tend to the nation, the governing. It was not his place to tend to the spiritual matters. <clears throat> that is the same thing we see here with Josiah. It wasn't really typically his place to declare the temple needs to be cared for. That should have been the high priest's job. But the high priest wasn't doing his job. So Josiah stepped in and sort of did his job for him. However, this isn't the same sort of sinful mistake that uh, Saul made, that King Saul made. Anybody know why? Because he didn't do it, he had them do it. No. Because his intentions were good? No. We talked about Saul, and the reason it was wrong is because Saul served all three offices. Oh, prophet, prophet, priest, and king. Right? Right. And even though he's doing the high priest's job, he never served as a prophet. So that's still only two of the three offices, which is what makes it different. Oh, I see. I see. And only the Lord serves all three offices. So Josiah is perfectly within his right to overreach and say, you're not doing your job, you need to start doing your job. Uh, typically the high priest's job, but Hilkiah the high priest had failed to do his job. Right. We have no higher calling than to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he affords us. Hilkiah had one of the highest callings you could have in Israel at that time. He had the calling of the high priest. There was no greater spiritual authority anywhere than to be the high priest of Israel in that time. Should have been considered a great honor and a great privilege, but because the people around him didn't see it as a great honor and a great privilege, he didn't see it as such. We sometimes make the mistake of needing the accolades. Right? We need people to see how prestigious and important our work is before we see it as prestigious and important. The fact of the matter is, if you wait around for people to praise you for what you do, you're going to be waiting a while sometimes. Because typically, any kind of work, but especially the kind of work you do for the Lord, doesn't usually come with a whole lot of praise. I've been working in the ministry since I was 16 years old. I've done everything from preaching and writing uh, Sunday school lessons for entire Sunday school departments to detailing vans and cleaning toilets. Everything in between. 
And I can tell you, even those jobs that you might consider to be glamorous and, and really prestigious are oftentimes not. You're met with a lot of opposition, people who don't appreciate the hard work you put into something. And especially if you're down there cleaning toilets, there's not a whole lot of claps going on down there with a plunger and a scrubber in your hand. Yeah. You're down there digging for the toilet bowl cleaner. There's not a whole lot of praise going on there. You're carrying out the trash to the dumpster behind the church. There's not a whole lot of people cheering as you're walking to the dumpster. You know, A lot of the work that we do for the Lord goes unappreciated. We're out handing out the gospel, gospel tracts and inviting people to church and such. And a whole lot of doors get slammed in your face. A whole lot of people get mad at you. Not because you were rude or did anything wrong, but simply because of the people that came before you that were rude and did do something wrong to them. But you're the one standing in front of them saying the same name, which is Jesus. So, oftentimes it's not, there's not a whole lot of glamour to the calling of the Lord and serving Him, but that doesn't mean that we should give it up. I had a man tell me one time, I was very, I think I might have been 17, 18 years old, I was still a Bible Baptist, and I was working the bus ministry, and a man told me uh, that if God has called you to something, you do not leave that calling. Right? If God has called you to do something, you are to do it for the rest of your life. Right? And he believed that with his whole heart. Uh, that man is now no longer doing that ministry nor working in the same church. <laughs> you have no higher calling than to serve the Lord. Amen in whatever capacity he affords you. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12, it says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. We talked about how you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, right? But the Bible also calls his children to serve him with all their heart and all their soul. In other words, if you're going to do something for God, God doesn't want half measures. God doesn't want you halfway serving him. If you're going to do something for God, you should put your whole heart and soul into it. Recently heard of a man who been grooming to become a pastor as long as I've known him. And then when he had the opportunity to become a pastor, wasn't sure he would take the opportunity because it didn't pay him enough money. There is no higher calling than to serve the Lord. Whatever sacrifices you need to make, you make them. And I don't care if it means you have to live in a slightly smaller house, if you have to pay a little bit less for your monthly car bill, if you have to cut some costs a little bit because there's a church full of Christians that need a pastor, there's a ministry full of children that need a teacher, there's anything that needs to be done, we make the sacrifice because that is what God has called us to do. We look back at the uh, Bible times to men who were being chased out of town, people throwing rocks at their heads trying to kill them. Right? We look at what Jesus endured for our salvation. We look at what first century Christians endured being thrown into the Colosseum 
with wild, angry, hungry lions as crowds full of people, enough people to fill the Dallas Cowboys stadium, sat around in theater seats watching them being eaten alive, men and women and children, as they cheered, watching children being eaten by lions. I don't think a financial sacrifice is that much for the Lord to ask of you. I don't think a little bit of your time on the weekends is too much for the Lord to ask for you. Nobody's throwing you in on the lion's den. But let's do something for the Lord. We don't want to be like Hilkiah. We want to be like Josiah. Serving the Lord in whatever capacity we can. But notice also as they're serving the Lord, as they're preparing to have this temple rebuilt that should have been rebuilt years ago, should have never needed to be rebuilt, should have just been kept up with. But as they're preparing for such, it says that there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered because they dealt faithfully. Now there is some confusion here. There's a matter of some debate as to who exactly they is. Which group of people are we talking about? Are we saying that there was no reckoning made of them of the money that was delivered because the priests dealt faithfully? Or are we talking about there was no reckoning made because the workers dealt faithfully? And there are some pretty, uh, pretty intelligent uh, Bible scholars that go both ways on this. But to me, one of them makes a lot of sense and the other one doesn't. Uh, this phrase tells us that there was no haggling or debating over the price of the work. Uh, but in my opinion, the author is referring to the workmen. Because the faithful dealings of employers wouldn't render the justifying of payment for the employed unnecessary. Uh, for example, God is as faithful a Lord as one could hope for. Yet we still have a record in heaven of our works. Not because he needs to be held accountable, but because we do. Right? And it would be the faithfulness of the workers which rendered the, the what is the word the Bible uses? The reckoning unnecessary. Uh, such examples of that record in heaven are found in Romans 14. Uh, verse 10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not, thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There are two great judgments, and we'll learn about this as we go through the book of Revelation. There are two great judgments. One is for Christians, and one is for everybody else. You've got the judgment seat of Christ, and that one is for Christians. And in my opinion, I believe that is where our works, the Bible says, will be made manifest. In other words, all the actions you've done in your life will become possessions that you can hold in your hand, and then they will be tried by fire. Because precious gems and jewels and crowns, those things endure. You can run a fire through them and they're not going to burn up or melt up. But all the other things that work for God in our life will become wood, hay, or stubble. And they'll burn up in the great judgment. That is the judgment seat of Christ and it's for Christians. There's another one mentioned in the book of Revelation called the Great White Throne Judgment. And that's for all the saved, and that's where a book is opened, and they're judged based off of their works. But that's a much harsher judgment, because without Christ, if they have one sin in their life, 
they're judged out of heaven. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Josiah, like many of us, discovered, firstly, that the greatest work you can do isn't what pays you the most or what gives you the most power. The greatest work that you can do is the work that gives you more of God. That's where you find happiness. That's where you find peace. That's where you find true prosperity. It's not in the place that provides you the most money. It's not in the place that provides you the most power. It's in the place that provides you more of God. You may work a job, and you may like or hate your job, and that doesn't mean you should quit your job. But what it does mean is that when you have an opportunity to work for the Lord... Don't snub that because it doesn't pay enough. We see also that Josiah was beginning to discover that God can be found not just in the temple, but also within the people that believe in him and follow him like these faithful workmen. These workmen evidently uh, had more of God in them than many of the priests working in the temple in their day. It's the same way that the Lord can be found, not just within the church, but in all those that believe in and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find, and especially in some churches more than others, you'll find that uh, there are some very faithful, good, strong Christian people that don't go to church anymore. That are more Christian, more godly, and have more of the Lord than some Christians that go to church every single Sunday. These are things Josiah is beginning to understand as he rediscovers the Lord. You notice Josiah did discover the Lord. He may not have been the first one ever to discover him, but that doesn't mean it's not a discovery. Just throw that out there and leave it on. The book of the law, or we see secondly, I'm sorry, I missed a bit. We see secondly, uh, discovering the book of God. And this is where the story gets truly, um, to me, it's very incredible. In verse 8 of chapter 22, it says, And Hilkiah the high priest uh, said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants... Excuse me, thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work and have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book, uh, the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asahiah, a servant of the kings, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that is written concerning us. 
So we see several things uh, mentioned we need to discuss. Firstly, we see uh, he, they say, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. The book of the law refers to the portion of scripture they had up to this point which mainly consists of the books of Moses, or the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. That's why they're called the books of Moses. They're also called the Pentateuch. But any way you slice it, anything you call it, uh, those are the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, much like the temple, the word of God had too been neglected by God's people for at least decades. For at least a couple of generations of kings. And so it had been a long time since anybody had ever heard the words of God. And it's true that a person can have a relationship with God without going to church. That's quite true. But that person cannot claim to obey God. I'm sorry, that person cannot claim to obey God, but they can claim to have a relationship with him. Because God does call us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. However, if a person neglects the word of God, they cannot claim to have a healthy relationship with the Lord. Because this is how God speaks to us. And this is how we get to know him better. What kind of relationship could you have with somebody when you do all the talking and you never let them talk to you? You tell them about your day, what you're going on, how you, what you're dealing with how you think about things, how you deal with things, and then when it's their turn to talk, you're too busy and you take off and you never let them talk back to you. There wouldn't be much of a relationship, would it? What kind of relationship would it be where one person knows the other person really well, but the other person never took the time to get to know the first person at all? That wouldn't be a very good relationship, would it? That is the relationship some Christians find themselves in with God. This doesn't just apply to romantic relationships. This applies to Christian relationships with the Lord. That's what we do. We come to the Lord with our prayers. This is what we need. This is what we want. This is our list. And then we go. We're too busy to stop and read our Bibles and see what God wants from us in return. God knows you very well. The Bible says the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, you know have some people in your life that know you really well. Your spouse might know you really well. Your parents might know you really well. But I guarantee you, none of them know how many hairs you have left on your head. Some people, it's easier to count than others. But, but God, even when you had hair, knew how many hairs you had on your head. God knows you. He knows you intimately. He knows you perfectly. And I think it's only fair that we do our best to get to know him in return. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, here it is, and increasing in the knowledge of God. What we should be striving for is increasing in the knowledge of God. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But increase our faith when we get to know the Lord better. We've got to do it through his word. Uh, we also see it says that when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. 
This is the natural reaction that occurs when someone discovers just how far they really are from God. I'll give you a few examples of that. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, this is the story of where Isaiah has been translated into the very throne room of God himself. He sees God in all his perfection. He sees the, the seraphims circling the throne, calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He sees God in all his magnificence and glory, and his response is this in verse 5. He says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, we're not talking about your average Joe here who gets upset and says a few things he shouldn't say. We're talking about a prophet. We're talking about as holy a mouth as one can possibly have. Yet when he stands before the Lord, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Another example is Job. Job getting discouraged by his friends all throughout the book. And finally, toward the end of the book, he says, well, then maybe it was better if I was never born. Maybe it was better if I never existed in the first place. Maybe God made a mistake by letting me be born from my mother's womb. God hears that. And I, I like to throw my Texas onto superimpose it on the Lord here because I think it's more entertaining that way. But uh, I just imagine, because this is kind of what my dad did to me growing up. You know, the Heavenly Father comes down to Job and he goes, Mary, I'm going to show you something. Mary, you see that over there? That's a dad move, isn't it? Mary. What is that? What is that? That's creation. That's right. Let me tell you something, son. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. He takes him on a whirlwind tour of the universe. Takes him back to the beginning. Takes him to Genesis 1. Shows him light being formed and separated from darkness. Shows him the sun and moon being crafted. Shows him Adam being formed. When I had stretched the line thereof, when I laid the foundations of the world, and he says, where was thou? He says, Job, where were you? Job has no answer. He continues going. He's talking about the different creatures he created. He's talking about, he, he shows him some of the highlights, though. He doesn't just show him dolphins or, you know, big mouth bass. He shows him Leviathan. Now, that's God's name for the creature he created. Might even be the name that Adam gave him. I don't know what we call it, but I can tell you, if we were to see it today, we would call it a sea monster. Right? It's probably some sort of gigantic underwater dinosaur. You know, there are creatures that live in the ocean we still don't know about to this day. Because there are depths of the ocean with all our technology we still can't get to. The pressure is too intense down there at the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean. So there could be underwater dinosaurs living down there that we just don't know about. There are some really incredible uh, things that might be down there we have no clue about. But the, here the Lord's talking about Leviathan. Guess who's talking about Leviathan? Then he talks about one of the land highlights. He talks about the behemoth. We don't know what the behemoth is. Again, that was the Lord's name for it or Adam's name for it, one of the two. But the behemoth was a monstrous creature as well. Possibly a dinosaur. And God shows Job these creatures. 
and he takes him and he, he shows him all these things and he says, now what do you have to say about whether or not I'm worthy to make decisions about your life? And this was Job's response. Job 42 and verse 5, he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes see it thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job, very poetic. But here he begins to finally understand. He says, my whole life and everything from beginning to end is nothing but a cosmic speck of dust compared to the entire line of the universe. The things that happen in my life don't matter to the grand scheme of things one bit. And if I should touch the history of the world with my life, I should consider it a tremendous honor. Who am I to complain when God takes my cattle away? We get so upset at God for not giving us the things we want. But if God was to show us what he showed Job, we would know we have no right to speak to him at all. And yet he allows us to speak to him in prayer. And we have no right to complain. I'll give you one last example of the reaction that people have when they meet the Lord. Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. This is the story when Peter... Uh, is on the fishing boat. He's been fishing all night. He's tired. And the Lord says, "Cast, go out one more time and cast your net. You'll find. And he says, Lord, we're tired. We've been fishing all night. We're going to go home. And, you know, Jesus has got that look, that look that probably dads have, when you don't want to do something, but you're going to because dad gave you that look. And you're like, all right, right I'll do it. Fine. That was Peter's attitude. He goes out there and he throws the net down one more time. I love, there's this uh, TV show called The Chosen. And it's got this scene in it. And I think it depicts very accurately what I've always pictured in my head. And he says, you know, I, I don't have a quarrel with you, but we're tired. We've been fishing all night. We don't, we're done. And then Jesus just kind of looks at him and he says, all right. So he pushes the boat back out and throws the water out. And he kind of gives him this, shrugs his shoulders. Like, see? He goes to pull it up and it's so full of so many fishes, the boat starts to sink. You have to get it back in. And this is Peter's reaction. Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter knew, compared to this man Jesus, I'm a sinful man. Getting to know God doesn't just come with a sense of guilt. though. No, I want you to understand that. It comes with a passionate desire to be a better person. Seeing the Lord doesn't just make you feel bad about yourself. That's not the goal. Seeing the Lord makes you want to be better. You say to yourself, I can do better than that, and I haven't been. That is true repentance. You say, from now on, I'm going to do better. We see thirdly and finally this morning is discovering the will of God in verse 14. It says, any break? Nope, that's the wrong chapter. Uh, here it is. So Hilkiah the priest, and uh, Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Asiaha, I'm sure I said that one wrong, but you to get one wrong after all those, right? Went unto Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva. Can't believe I got that one right. The son of 
Carthus, keeper of the wardrobe. Goodness gracious. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they communed with her. Uh, verse 15, And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the, kings, uh, which the king of Judah hath read, because they have forsaken and have, buried, and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might uh, provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and has rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace, and thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. We see firstly the phrase, Hul to the prophetess, I wanted to mention real quick, because it's not often that people stop and mention that there were some very important uh, women in the Bible that held really high authority. Right? Typically people, when they, they skip over that on purpose, they want to talk about Deborah the judge, how she wasn't just the judge, it was Deborah and Barak co-judges. But that's not what the Bible says. Deborah was the judge. There was a woman in charge over all the men that are going to have to get over it. And here again we see a prophetess, not a prophet, right, coming with God's word, telling the king what to do because she holds that authority as one that brings God's message. Pool to the prophetess. Not one you often hear about in scripture because oftentimes it just rubs people the wrong way that don't want to believe there is an equality in the church when it comes to men and women. So whether we're talking about Deborah the judge that was called by God to rule over Israel, or the many women that Paul lists in Romans 16 as helpers in Christ and co-laborers with him in the work of the gospel, women have served a much larger role in the work of God than a lot of people would like for you to know about. Paul does no exception and serves as vital a role in the history of Israel and the influence with the king as the prophet Isaiah himself, whom we talked about a few weeks ago. And then we also see, finally this morning, no, not finally, I will bring evil upon this place, he says, and the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. Deuteronomy 30, verses 17 and 18, which I won't read now for sake of time, uh, mentions this, where he says, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish, ye shall not prolong your days upon the land. Whether thou passest over Jordan to possess it, Joshua 23, 16 says, When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, uh, and have gone to serve other gods, bowed yourself unto them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he hath given unto you. And I believe that it was passages, excuse me, like this that King Josiah read and understood, uh-oh, we're in a lot of trouble. 
So Josiah learns that God warns us of the danger we create for ourselves long before it begins to plague us. And then we see, finally, it says, Thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I bring upon this place. What qualities did God see within Josiah that caused him to show the king such compassion and mercy? And it lists many of them for us here in the Bible. Uh, Firstly, a tender heart. That Josiah had a tender heart. And it might be interesting for you to know that this is the only mention of a tender heart in all the Bible. We may not read of a tender heart, but we do sometimes read of the consequences of having the opposite, which is a hard heart. One such example is Romans 2.5. And it says, But after thy hardness and impotent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The hardness of your heart, hardening your heart, not allowing you to be tender because life has taught you a hard heart will help you survive and get you through. Choosing a hard heart over a tender heart will cost you more than you realize. Uh, Secondly, we see humility was another one of his uh, traits that God saw in him to bless himself. And 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Uh, We also see repentance. He repented of the evil that had been plaguing Israel and Judah for generations and and wanted to make a change. That's repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Salvation not to be repented of. In other words, you can't lose your salvation. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. So there's a godly sort of sorrow, and there's a worldly sort of sorrow. And the world's kind of sorrow is just something that makes you feel bad and makes you feel worse. You never feel any better. But godly sorrow is one that you might be able to use to better yourself as a person, as a Christian, and grow closer to the Lord and and grow a little bit as a human being and, and, and use that to become the person that God saved you to become. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow And we see, lastly, is a willingness to pray he had. And he said, God said, because you were willing to listen to me, I'm going to be willing to listen to you. We see 1 Thessalonians 5.17, very simple verse, three words, pray without ceasing. That's not without context, because it's in a list of things Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica, I need some sleep. Uh... (laughs) As he's concluding his uh, his letter to them there. And one of them is, very quickly, he wants to mention praying without ceasing. That you should constantly be in the spirit of prayer, even if you're not constantly praying. So we see, lastly, that Josiah learns many things about the Lord and came to know the Lord personally. But the most important thing that King Josiah learned was how to find the mercies and the forgiveness of the Lord. Uh, what time is it? Oh, very good. We're done a little bit early. We'll be back at 11 o'clock. Yeah, 11 o'clock.